Hello, I'm Rabbi Ed Bernstein. Welcome to the My Teacher Podcast, a celebration of the people who shape our lives. My dear friends Matt Eisenfeld and Sarah Duker were on their way to enjoy a holiday in Petra, Jordan, but they never made it. On February 25, 1996, a terrorist suicide bomber detonated himself on the number 18 bus in Jerusalem, Israel, killing 26 innocent people, including Matt and Sarah. Their loss devastated everyone who knew them, and the attack that took their lives had geopolitical ripple effects that are evident still today. In this special two-part series of My Teacher podcast, I'm pleased to be joined in conversation by Mike Kelly, a renowned journalist and columnist for the Bergen Record in northern New Jersey, who did extensive reporting on this attack. Check out My Teacher podcast episode 11, in which I interview him on the arc of his career and his reporting on this story that led to his acclaimed book, The Bus on Jaffa Road. In this episode, Mike interviews me on my relationship with Matt and Sarah and their legacy as recorded in part in the book that I edited, Love Finer Than Wine, The Writings of Matthew Eisenfeld and Sarah Duker. Those of us who knew Matt and Sarah are as committed as ever to preserving their memory. They were, after all, great teachers, and we still have much to learn from them. Now, Back to my conversation with Mike Kelly. So, Ed, this brings me to you. <laughs> so let's turn the tables here and let me ask you about you, because some of your research was was very, uh, very much involved in, in my research. And, and you pulled together the writings of Matt and Sarah, first in a memorial volume. I mean, when, when, when I saw this at Arlene Duker's home, I couldn't believe it. It was it was this very large bind, three ring binder that must have been five or six inches thick with writings. And I said, gee, can I borrow this? And I, it, I, I kept it for several years as I was working on the book. But how did you how did you come to know Matt and Sarah as people? Let, let's start at the beginning. Where did you first meet them? They were very dear friends. I was closer to Matt. We met first in 1991. I was an undergrad at the Jewish Theological Seminary, and he was an undergrad at Yale. But the seminary had what they called a mini-mester in the summer. <laughs> a, a number of the college students would spend the summer working at Jewish summer camp. So they, the, the Ramah camps sure. and JTS collaborated to have a mini-mester where students could come from across the country, get college credit for courses in Judaica, and then still have the rest of the summer to go out and serve the community. So they packed a three-credit course into about three weeks time and you, you you went to class every single day and then there was a lot of homework and um, it, it was a, a very intense crash course so they offered a course that year in Torah and commentaries Matt came from Yale he stayed in the dorms where I was already situated and we just became fast friends in this very intensive course so um, I mean, we we became friendly we hung out quite a bit 
He loved Frisbee. I remember being taken by the fact that he would go down to the Lower East Side to Chinatown and could speak Mandarin Chinese to people on the street because <laughs> he had spent some time in China. And I also remember his uh, just his his kindness and his intensity, his hunger for learning. But we went our separate ways after that. In those days, there wasn't yet email, at least not as it developed uh, just a few years sure. later. He went on to finishing at Yale, and I finished my undergrad work at JTS in Columbia. And if it were 20 years later, we would have friended each other on Facebook and kept in touch. But that just wasn't an option then. And we just, we just went our separate ways. But we met again in 1993 in Efrat, which is in the West sure. Bank. And the uh, town that was founded largely by great charismatic modern Orthodox rabbi Shlomo Riskin, he started a, a modern Orthodox yeshiva there. I was in between my undergraduate work and rabbinical school. I knew I was going to JTS, which is one of the flagships of conservative Judaism. And yet I wanted to get a grounding in a, a deeper grounding in classical Jewish texts before immersing in rabbinical school. And I chose this option. It happens that nowadays, almost 30 years later, there are a lot more options for doing that kind of work in atmospheres that are more in concert with what I with uh, what I'm used to conservative egalitarian atmospheres but at that time there were fewer choices so I chose this place and I went not knowing too many people and I walk into the Beit Midrash the study hall the day I arrived and there was Matt sitting at a oh, table wow. and we immediately renewed our friendship we had a lot of similar struggles because he was coming from a conservative background and was seeking to deepen his jewish knowledge in this intense orthodox environment and i was doing the same and we had discussions and debates and late night cry fests and uh, just trying to figure out what we were going to do with our lives sure. if we were on, if we were on the right path if we were doing the right thing if we should do something else. What is the future of conservative Judaism? We would have these late night discussions. In fact, for a good chunk of that year, we roomed together as well as hanging out in the Beit Midrash. So these were discussions that we would have practically 24-7. What I thought was so interesting was how intense these discussions were. And actually, that I, I'm not Jewish, but I have studied quite a bit of background in, 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 the, in the different tribes, so to speak, in Judaism, be they the different elements of orthodoxy, conservative Judaism, and reform Judaism. I also have a master's degree in theology, by the way. So I was drawn to this on, a, on, on many different levels. What I was struck by was the faith journey here, and I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the intensity of that for both you and Matt, and how that came together in your friendship. It was interesting. We had similar but also different backgrounds. I mean, I was in some respects the poster child for conservative Judaism. I went through the ranks growing up in a conservative synagogue, going to conservative youth group where, where I became a national leader and conservative Jewish camps and then JTS for undergrad. And so I was on that path. And then Suddenly, I was confronted with something very different, a different 
approach to Jewish life, and it upset the apple cart, so to speak, at that time for me. Matt, his family was affiliated with a conservative congregation in West Hartford, Connecticut. He also had background in the reform movement and also uh, within orthodoxy at Yale. He had a lot of Orthodox friends and was involved in Orthodox services there sometimes. And he had gone to uh, the Pardes Yeshiva sure. in Israel, the Pardes Institute, where Sarah had also studied and had more of that traditional grounding that I actually did not have. I mean, I was more consistently traditionally observant, I guess, over my life, but I didn't have that orthodox grounding. But he had a little bit more of that exposure as well as reform and conservative. So he was kind of sorting all of this out. And I was in my first real confrontation with something different than what I was used to. And it made for an interesting mix of discussion topics that we had uh, all that time. Well, I think this is always the case, no matter what religious background you come from, like, where do you place your own modern journey, okay, yourself? And how do you connect that to ancient ancient traditions? And what I sensed in Matt in particular, Sarah also was struggling with this. As, I wouldn't say struggle is probably the wrong word. I think just you know, for, you know, wrestling with it, thinking about it intensely. How do I place my modern life into this framework that has so many ancient traditions? And I think for uh, my sense is that I, I think people who are devout, no matter what religious background you come from, this is something that uh, we all struggle with at some point, if you're honest with yourself. And I just thought that when I, when I interviewed you at length about your friendship with Matt, I, I just sensed that there was such a wonderful uh, and honest and open and human journey here that I, that, I, I, that I, I, and that's why I felt it was important in my own research to sort of document that, that faith journey as best I could. Yeah, thank you. That was very much an important aspect of our friendship and something that continued throughout the time we knew each other. We did both wind up returning to New York in fall of 1994. We enrolled in JTS Rabbinical School. We roomed together that year. We continued to have this dialogue and discussion. But an inter interesting thing happened in the meantime, uh, Sarah came. I was going to ask too. you is when you moved back to New York, that's when Sarah entered the picture. I mean, she had met uh, Matt. Before that, but yeah, it was actually before that, during our year in Efrat, Sarah was studying at the Pardes Institute in Jerusalem, 1993-94. It's interesting. They started dating around Hanukkah, around December 1993. And it's interesting. In Matt's journal at that time, he writes... Oh, can you read a bit of that? That's wonderful. On December 8, 1993. I am here. That's here in Yeshiva in Efrat. I'm here pursu pursuing a love that will never end, unlike any other love in the world. He wrote this in his journal, probably within days of the beginning of his relationship with Sarah. And I just find that remarkable because, sure. because Sarah turned out to be his greatest love in terms of romance and planning a life together. And yet he also had this very intense love of learning. Uh, so Sarah comes into the picture December 1993. I knew her 
from New York because uh, she had started at Barnard and I was in that world. I had just graduated. So like Matt, I was two years older than Sarah, but I knew her from social circles. I was couple of years older, but we, we hung out in similar circles. But as she was dating Matt, I got to know her better as well. Then we returned to New York. And in the meantime, Matt is going through these great struggles, trying to find his place in the Jewish world. And Sarah was coming from a different place. She grew up very fervently egalitarian conservative. There's an enclave of Teaneck, New Jersey, where there's a community connected to the Beth Shalom synagogue, where there happen to be a lot of professors from JTS who belong to sure. this congregation. So you have a congregation of people who are very traditionally observant. They keep this Shabbat, Sabbath, and other aspects of Jewish law very punctiliously. And it's an egalitarian conservative community. It's, it's almost like an ideal conservative community. And that's the environment that Sarah grew up in. And at the same time, Sarah also went to the Frisch School, the Orthodox school in New Jersey, where Alyssa Flato sure. also attended. And she had this traditional grounding in Jewish text. She could open a Talmud and read it like it was a book. And she had full access to traditional Jewish sources. And people like Matt and me were coming to that a little later, yet she just lived and breathed that. And yet she was fully at home in an egalitarian Jewish lifestyle, which was very different from the Orthodox world. There's a rabbi in Chicago named Rabbi B'nai Lappi, who graduated from JTS, and she happens to be gay, and she went to JTS before JTS admitted gays and lesbians who were open, and she talks on other podcasts about being in the closet at the time she was at JTS and how she felt like she was like Prometheus stealing the fire. Like she went to JTS to learn everything she could in traditional, the traditional manner and then bring it out into the world later on. In a way, Sarah was kind of like that. I mean, she probably wasn't conscious of that, but she had imbibed this traditional learning and was able to lead this integrated, authentic Jewish lifestyle that embraced women's role in, in everything. Yeah. She, and in the mid-1990s, that was a, a point of struggle. It still is on some levels, but it was a, it was a, a somewhat, somewhat controversial, but but there was a lot of younger women such as Sarah who were trying to drive that a little bit. But I wonder if you could talk a little bit about Matt and Sarah as a couple, and you got to know them in one interesting moment where Sarah and Matt decided to try to help a homeless woman who used to sit outside on the steps, I believe, of JTS. Talk, talk to me a little bit about that. The 1990s, there were a lot of panhandlers. New York City has more millionaires per capita than anywhere else, and it has more homeless people than per capita than anywhere yeah, else. Yeah, sure. Still does. At that time, the Columbia JTS area was a little less gentrified than it is now. And there were there were more panhandlers out on the street. And there was one woman who she kind of parked herself in front of JTS on the 122nd and Broadway. A sweet lady, African-American, even as she wore old, worn 
clothes, the, the way she did her hair and wore certain scarves. You could tell that she had a certain flair about her, a certain sense of style. And there was just, there's a certain, there was a sparkle in her eye. I, like most people, to the extent I interacted with her, I'd take a buck out of my wallet and give it to her and go on my way. Yet Matt and Sarah did something different. They they did. Really saw the humanity in her. They befriended her. Her name was Anne. And one day I I came home to our apartment and there was Anne is sitting in our apartment having a cup of hot tea with Matt sitting at our table. It was a frigid day and Matt just wanted to give her some respite. So he invited her up and she had some tea. This was very interesting. I thought as, as a writer, when I came to this, I said, wait a second, how many people would invite a homeless person into their home? And I thought it was significant and said something about Matt and Sarah too, that they would do this. And it didn't end there. No. I mean, it, <laughs> if, it, if it had ended there, we could you know, eulogize Matt and Sarah for their incredible sensitivity and kindness, but they even went beyond that. I know. Tell us about that. Tell us about that. So they sensed this artistic flair in Anne and they had befriended her and they saw her humanity and they taught her how to crochet kippot, you know, the skull sure. caps that most Jewish men wear during ritual and in the JTS community and in conservative communities, many women wear kippot. You know, it's like the old Chinese proverb, give a person a fish, they can live for a day, teach a person how to fish, they can live the rest of their lives. And that's what they did. They taught her how to crochet kipote that she would then sell to the community. So rather than panhandling and asking for a quarter or a dollar to people coming around, she would then have something to sell. She would have kipote and people would buy them. They had a distinctive style. She used this thick orange yarn and people bought them and so she had the sense of dignity. Now, I don't pretend to believe that she made a living off of this, but Matt and Sarah were looking out for her human dignity. Exactly. They, they saw her humanity. And so I remember Matt wearing this thick orange yarn kippah the rest of that year, and he wore it very proudly. It's interesting. When I was researching uh, my book, I wanted to find out what was the kippot that Matt was wearing the day he died? And I was not able to find that. Again, you know, sometimes in nonfiction, we run into these roadblocks, but I don't know what happened to the kippot he bought from Anne. But the story you tell there is just wonderful. It truly is, because I think, again, it illustrates humanity here. On another note, though, I speaking of Matt's journal entries, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the journal entry he wrote on the day that Itzhak Rabin was assassinated. You talked about the larger geopolitical picture in which the bus on Jaffa Road is set. We were in our year in Israel. The JTS Rabbinical School has a required year in, in Israel, a required year of study. We were at JTS's sister school, Machon Schechter, the Schechter Institute sure. in Jerusalem that year. Our year was already rocked by the assassination of Rabin on the night of November 4th, 1995. In fact, many of us were in 
Matt's apartment that night. Matt's roommate that year was Rabbi Shai Held. Uh, Shai gathered friends into that apartment for an evening of study and celebration. He called it a Malava Malka, which is an end of Shabbat celebration. There was study, there was singing, there was dancing. And then we left that, whatever it was, 10 o'clock that night, and immediately got news of Rabin. And it was surreal. So Matt wrote in his journal the night before last. So he wrote this Monday, November 6th. The night before last, Yitzhak Rabin was killed by a Jewish assassin who believed himself to be serving the Jewish people. Rabin had been a general who had fought in Israel's wars and died as a man who worked tirelessly for peace. His accomplishments, among others, are a peace treaty with Jordan and the formation of an autonomous Palestinian state in which Yasser Arafat, a former enemy, became an ally. I admired Yitzhak Rabin and had confidence in the Israeli government because of him. I feel the country is in disarray at this point because nobody can really fill his shoes. What sickens me even more is that a lot of Israelis don't seem to understand the significance of what has happened. People say things like, another victim in the peace process, it hurts that we've lost a Jew to a Jew, but really, is he any more significant than any other terror victim? One shouldn't mourn too much. Or worse, Rabin should not be allowed burial in a Jewish cemetery because he was a traitor. They just don't understand. The prime minister has been killed. Will this country ever be the same again? In the Beit Midrash yesterday, the school tried to conduct classes as usual but we students voted otherwise with our feet. We said psalms, sang dirges, cried, and listened to a eulogy. I am subdued, sleepy, and feel lousy. My nose keeps running, and I've got a canker sore at the place where my tongue connects to the bottom of my mouth. I'm bothered by cigarette smoke and the fumes from the candles that are lit in the crowds that gather to walk quietly and cry. Today I will try to walk in the Levaya, the funeral procession, and watch the funeral speakers on TV. I want to hear the nations of the world speak and pay tribute to Yitzhak Rabin. I want Israelis to understand whom they've lost. Yitzhak Rabin, Yehizichro Varuch. May his memory be for a blessing. Very personal, very personal, don't you think? Personal, vivid, the imagery that he, I mean, you can, can't you see the cigarette smoke? Oh, yeah. Uh, and, the, and smell the candles, the way he brings this imagery. I mean, one interesting thing is, and this connects back to the geopolitics that you reported on, and that is how he describes Yasser Arafat, how he saw him at that time, yes. what Yasser Arafat really was. I think you uncovered in your reporting that Yasser Arafat had advanced knowledge sure. of the bus on Jaffa Road incident. Yes, Arafat, and I was able to determine this by by speaking with you know an exclusive interview with one of the architects of the Oslo Peace Accords. But yes, Arafat had advanced knowledge of the bombing of the bus on Jaffa Road. And what we saw in there is the two sides of Arafat. You know, the, the, you know we saw when he, in his relationship with Isaac Rabin, at least the public face of Arafat trying to come across as a peacemaker. But behind the scenes, Arafat was playing a very different game. It is one of the most revelatory moments in my book, I think. And I was glad, it took a lot of reporting to get that, but it, it, uh, 
I was able to determine, I think, fairly conclusively that Arafat had advanced knowledge of the bombing. I wonder if we could turn here again to something that Matt wrote in his journal uh, about creating, creating a new yeshiva. And I always felt that this was a fascinating journal entry, Ed, because I think it really kind of summarizes on some level where Matt was at in terms of his own faith journey. And I wonder if you could read a few lines from that. Sure. So he wrote this right around that same time, Tuesday, November 7th, 1995. Devorah Schoenfeld, who is now a Judaic scholar at Loyola University in Chicago, yes. good friend. She was living in Israel at the time and was close to our social circle. So he writes, Devorah just called to tell me about their yeshiva that she and others would begin in Israel next year. This could be my opportunity to become one of the founders and builders of a new openness and passion. Do I dare to dream this dream, to be a shaper of a new yeshiva and to eventually take the Rabbanut, the Israeli chief rabbi? exams. I could be in Israel, marry Sarah, learn Torah, and work to build a vision of good purpose. Rather than read poems, I could live a poem. Do I dare? I feel now as if God has heard my prayers to help me stop my rage and to build sturdy structures, words of truth, acceptable words written in good form. Again, an open window into this young man's not only sense of the bigger world, but also his own personal journey. I always just struck, and his ability to express that, which is just so interesting, don't you think? He's a great writer, very creative, sure. uses vivid imagery, and he was a dreamer. He, he and Sarah were both dreamers. In fact, Sarah wrote in her high school yearbook that her, her motto was <laughs> keep both feet firmly planted in the clouds. Yes. <laughs> yes. This dichotomy of having feet firmly planted that's normally associated with groundedness and yet being in the clouds. And they both had this very idealistic sense about them. And you, you hear that in that journal entry as well. Well, you know, it's, it's what's interesting about Sarah I felt was that she was a scientist. She was a trained environmental biologist. And at the time of her death, she was working on some very specific projects at Hebrew University. I actually went there and went into the lab where she worked because I wanted to kind of follow, you know, part of my work is to try to sort of walk the walk, so to speak, and go to the places where they were. I, I even went to the medical examiner's office in uh, Israel to talk to the man who performed the autopsy on them to understand, you know, how extensive their their wounds were. But that quotation you mentioned about Sarah keeping feet both firmly planted in the clouds, I think, is so indicative of her. It was that it was that trying to find the balance between science and reality and also idealism. And I think that that's what brought Matt and Sarah together. They were both very real people in the sense that they were, Matt in his case, studying rabbinical texts and doing it in a very meticulous manner, Sarah with her work as a scientist. But at the same time, they both had these ideals. I wonder if you could talk about them for a moment though, as a couple, you know, how did they come across to you? They clearly loved each other. They debated and there was tension at times. They It wasn't lovey-dovey all the time, but they had complete trust in one another. You know, as you said before, they had never 
publicly declared an engagement, and it was incorrect by some media outlets that reported they were engaged. I don't believe that was the case, although a number of us think that Matt was going to propose to Sarah on that trip to Jordan that they were embarking on. Yes. My my good friends, Tracy and Rabbi Michael Bernstein, no relation to me, but dear friends, they were married the year before or the summer before we went to Israel. And uh, Michael and Tracy contributed an essay to my book, Love Finer Than Wine, in which they talk about Matt and Sarah coming to their apartment during the course of that year and asking intense questions about <laughs> marriage. What do you like about being married? Uh, they, they really want to know what it takes for a married couple to tick. They were exploring if they would meet that challenge. I think they did, and they would have. And I went back to both Tracy and her husband and asked them about that scene because I, I felt it was a very pivotal scene in their relationship, and I wanted to try to capture that as best I could when I was doing my research. But, but I think it, it, what to me, this scene really kind of embodies what Matt and Sarah were all about. They were, they, they were obviously caught up in being lovers, but at the same time, they wanted to sort of find out. Well, tell us in a, in a you know go you know go to go to two people they knew and trusted and asking some very very practical and hard questions. It was it, again the the balance between you know your feet planted on the ground and, and at the same time in the clouds as well. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. They wove these two worlds together in amazing ways. They they each did that. They complemented each other in that respect. They would have been an amazing couple and I'm sure they would have had a, an amazing family. I wonder if we could talk a little bit about here, uh, and I know this is somewhat extensive, but Matt and Sarah both wrote mission, kind of mission statements, if you will. Matt had his, Sarah had hers, and both are fairly extensive. Sarah's much longer than Matt's, <laughs> much more much more extensive. But they both, both those mission statements, I thought, really spoke to their character. And I wonder if you could talk for a moment about both of them. Well, with respect to Matt, we had started the JTS Rabbinical School in the fall of 1994. The dean of the school at that time was our beloved teacher, Rabbi Bill Lebo. He's still very active, thank God, and works for the Rabbinical Assembly. I'm glad to hear that. I, I, I interviewed him extensively. He continues to be a wonderful friend and mentor of mine. During his tenure as dean of the rabbinical school, he taught the senior seminar in practical rabbinics to the graduating seniors. But even outside of that class, many of the lessons that he would teach the seniors, he would communicate to the rest of the student body. So on his syllabus for the senior seminar was Stephen Covey's book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I'm not going to go through that whole list, but there's begin with the end in mind and all these habits that one can hone to develop a, a productive lifestyle. Rabbi Lebo turned to that as a means to model mission-driven living and leadership for rabbis. So even though we weren't seniors, we were just starting out, Rabbi Lebo certainly made known to the students that that was an important book. And Matt took it to heart from practically day one of rabbinical school and set out to create goals for himself, uh, goals of what he wanted to accomplish in rabbinical school or for a particular year in rabbinical school. 
And he wrote out in longhand at the beginning of the, our year in Israel what his educational goals were for that year in Israel. So he writes it out in longhand and he thumbtacks it to the wall. And it's printed, in, it's printed in your book, which is, yeah. Yeah, it's printed both in the original with a, a photocopy of, of the letter and then also in typeface. Sure. So he wrote the statement of educational goals and... He writes, this, this year is to be spent studying at the Beit Midrash in Jerusalem with my class in rabbinical school year two. Underlying and influencing my education is the need to constantly re-examine the values I believe to be morally appropriate. The continual self-examination should lead me to involve myself in causes that serve others as I have a stake in the world around me and can be useful. This ultimate goal of becoming more useful should direct my energies while I study. As a student this year, I should strive to create resources for myself. I should seek out individuals from whom I can learn, both from teaching and example. I should keep an open mind so as to easily identify such people. Furthermore, I should explore new ways to solve problems and answer questions with which I am faced. As I search for resources, I should also be a resource for others. Being a resource involves my careful, attentive listening to others. I should speak politely and respectfully, and I should ask questions to ensure my understanding of what I am told. Because much of my time will be spent in class in front of open books, I should set practical goals as well. I should strive to learn something new from each of my classroom teachers and look for ways to incorporate the new methodologies I am taught. I should make sure that my study partners understand everything I understand in order that we build mutual trust, become friends, and share knowledge. I should begin each class with a good enough understanding on the subject to ask an intelligent question. Among my more concrete goals are personal projects begun outside of class. I am to finish Tractate Kiddushin before my birthday, it's the 25th birthday, on the Jewish calendar, 11 Shvat. I should discipline myself to write about Parshat HaShavua, the weekly Torah portion, at least once a week. Furthermore, I will begin work on a Pesach Haggadah to be used at family seders. This Haggadah should clarify some of the symbols with which we interact as we perform the mitzvot related to the evening and should generate discussion. Finally, and perhaps most important, I will decide which school I should attend for the completion of my rabbinic studies. I will make this decision based on my ability to fulfill the goals I have mentioned and the prospect of future improvement. Signed, Matt Eisenfeld, November 18th, 1995. Only a few months before he died. Yeah, and this was hanging over his bed. This is what he looked at every night before he went to bed. Sarah also had a mission statement, and I, I was drawn to it, and hers is, of course, much longer. We can't read all of it, but the parallels to Matt's mission statement I find very intriguing here. I want to just draw your attention to something that I thought was very interesting, what she said about God. Do you want to read it? I think it should be reiterated that Sarah was an emerging scientist. Yes. She had this love of Jewish learning that she 
pursued with great passion, and she had more facility with classical Jewish texts than many seasoned rabbis. And yet she was a scientist. She was on path to becoming a biologist sure. with a focus in environmental science. And yet she has the, her own mission statement in which she talks about God. Sarah Duker's mission statement, fall 1995. I believe that there is a God or at least try to believe, because this is something beyond my human capacity to understand. And because of this God and forces God put into motion, we have a world, nature, humanity, diversity, infinite levels of complexity, all these things we can see and cannot, can imagine and cannot. That I am present on this earth and alive, human, that I ought to be as alive as possible. This is how she starts her mission statement. It's quite lengthy, yeah. And, and again, it's reprinted in full in your book. I think it's truly inspiring. I, I don't know about you, Ed, but I found as a researcher, again, someone who never met Matt and Sarah, but felt I came to know them. I felt inspired by these two. I mean, they died as young people uh, in their 20s, and yet they had so much maturity so much, so much of an inner life. You know, one of the things that I find as a writer, I look for in people, do they have an inner life? Do they have any self-reflection? And I think that some of us do it better than others. <laughs> some of us struggle with it all of our lives in various forms. And what struck me about Matt and Sarah is they had a very well-developed inner life. They were reflective people, maybe to a fault. They, they, they reflected a lot. But the fact of the matter is they reflected. And I think in this fast-paced world of Twitter and you know social media and stuff like that, self-reflection may have disappeared. And I, I felt that when I was when I was researching this, that I felt inspired that these two had managed to capture some measure of self-reflection. It's uncanny. It never ceases to be inspiring. One thing we should point out, I think, about Sarah is that she was involved with a women's prayer group that I write about a little bit. And that group went on to be one of the foundations of the so-called women at the wall movement. So to, even to this day, Sarah is still part of, you know, not only Judaism, particularly in Israel and specifically Jerusalem, but also, uh, I think, in the larger Jewish world as well, I think she still has an impact on that in her, her role there. Sarah, I mean, for many women in, in, in Judaism today, this may not seem much of a shock, but Sarah was even had her own prayer shawl, which she used to wear. And, and I think, you know, on some, in some egalitarian communities, I think this is something that more women are embracing. Yeah, at JTS, it's interesting, I had on this podcast, recently Rabbi Amy Eilberg, who was the first woman ordained in the conservative movement. She was ordained in 1985. Sure. I invite listeners to listen to that episode. So JTS started ordaining women in 1985, but there still was a bastion of the old school traditionalism that remained in, in the conservative movement for a long time after that. And while well, all women who became rabbis and cantors took on the practice of wearing a talit and also tefillin, phylacteries, it didn't permeate so much to the laity. But here was Sarah, who in the early 1990s, probably before that, uh, since her bat mitzvah, she wore a talit whenever she engaged in prayer. And she just did that because to her, that's what a Jew would do, man or woman. And she would wear a talit 
in prayer services. And so she was helping to change the paradigm. It wasn't something that the women who became rabbis would do, but it was just something that Jewish women took on. And, and she modeled that. I wonder if, Ed, if I could just end here by asking you, and I, I suggested something earlier about what Matt and Sarah would have become. What do you think if they were alive today, what would they, what would life be like with Matt and Sarah in the world? They were both embodiments of kindness. I think of them, I think of just pure kindness. Yeah. And they weren't perfect and they made mistakes. And, you know, I had my fights with Matt. It was never perfect, but, uh, but the goodness, the kindness, the consideration, the thoughtfulness. I don't think I've ever told this story publicly, but Matt and I roomed together for really one and a half years in Israel and then New York. I would use an, an electric razor and <laughs> um, sometimes, you know, it would leave shavings in the sink or sometimes I would dump the shavings down the drain. And Matt, he was very finicky about that. He said, you should not dump the shavings down the drain because it would clog the drain. And then you'd have to call a plumber and that wouldn't be fair to a plumber to have to clean out the drain. And so he was always just thinking ahead to that. So to this day, practically every time I shave, I, I think of Matt. So to take it back to what they might have become, what they would have become, they would have first and foremost brought more kindness and consideration into the world and modeled that for others. And then in terms of their professional accomplishments, it would know no bounds. I mean, you know, it's interesting now as we're speaking, we're recording this in the interim period between the elections and President-elect Joe Biden's inauguration. And we've been seeing him appoint people. And I'm looking at many of the people in the, who coming into the cabinet Many of the designees in there are my age, you know, sure. late 40s, 50, early 50s. And Sarah could well have been a scientist involved in the EPA under this administration. I mean, who knows? It's amazing to think of what she and Matt might have accomplished. I know. Matt, for, Matt, for his part, he writes extensively about creating a yeshiva, a place of learning in America where lay people could go for learning for the sake of learning, Torah Lishma, we call it in Hebrew, learning for the sake of it. Our mutual dear friend, Rabbi Shai Held, is helping to lead an organization that does that to a great extent. It's called Hadar, the Hadar Institute. I know, I know. York City. And I wonder at times, would Matt have been a part of that? Would Matt have created something similar in, in another part of the country? Would he have moved to Israel? But he would have done, done something very significant and very creative. I, I have no doubt. I agree with you. To, to say that we've lost two wonderful people is just an understatement. But I'm, I'm so delighted, Ed, that you've put together this really terrific book of their writings. I think if anybody who reads it, and you can just pick up even portions of it and be very much inspired. I'm grateful that you were able to do this. And I was grateful that I could participate in this. I really am. Mike, it is a joy to talk to you even about difficult subjects such as this, yeah. the subject that brought us together, but you've become a great friend and mentor. I consider you 
one of my teachers. Oh my goodness. I'm so grateful that you uh, take time to come on my teacher podcast as we share thoughts of two teachers of ours, sure. Matt and Sarah, whom I knew personally and who were teachers of yours, even just through their writings. Uh, I agree. So uh, I, I pray that the memory of these two great teachers will be for a blessing and that we will continue to cross paths for happy occasions. Uh, my goodness, I hope so, Ed. Thank you so much. Yes, amen to that. I wish to thank my guest, Mike Kelly, for joining me on My Teacher Podcast. You can follow him on Twitter at Mike Kelly Column. In the show notes, please find a link to more information about Mike's book, The Bus on Jaffa Road, available through all major booksellers. You can also find a link to my book, Love Finer Than Wine, the writings of Matthew Eisenfeld and Sarah Duker, available through Amazon.com. I am thankful for all of my teachers, especially my three children, without whom this podcast would not be possible. Theme music is by Sam Bernstein. Production assistant is Noam Bernstein. Internet art and graphic design are by Esther Bernstein. Please help others find My Teacher Podcast by rating and reviewing the show on iTunes. I welcome comments, including suggestions for future guests, at myteacherpodcast at gmail.com. You can also reach out through Twitter at Podcast Teach, as well as Facebook. May the wisdom of your teachers guide you, and may you be a teacher to others. <laughs>